Amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and uh, turn to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 12. And uh, if you're using the Black Bible in front of you there, the chair in front of you, you'll find it on page 848. 848. Uh, Mark chapter 12. And this morning we're going to be looking at verses 28 uh, to 30. To, to 34, verses 28 to 34, okay? All right, well, here goes the word. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to them, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one na- one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Amen. Let's go to the Lord. Father, once again, we thank you for the privilege to quiet ourselves before your word. We pray that in these moments, only your word would be spoken, only what is consistent with the truth of your word. And Father, we pray that as we hear that word, you would send conviction and peace and comfort and healing, and you would grant repentance and faith. And Father, we pray that we would be changed forever for your glory. And it's through Christ we pray. Amen. Well, this event takes place, I just read, this event takes place during the last week of Jesus' life. And uh, if you've been here for our series, you might know that chapter 11 of the Gospel of Mark opens with Jesus entering into the city of Jerusalem. And this is the last week of Jesus' life. He's entering into the city. And then what follows in chapters 11 and 12 is a series of confrontations between Jesus and and the Sanhedrin. So Jesus goes into Jerusalem, specifically he goes into the temple, he finds the Sanhedrin there, who were uh, the most powerful religious and political body in Jewish life at that time. The Jewish Sanhedrin was comprised of uh, chief priests, scribes, and elders. So those were the three kind of offices or groups of people that made up the larger body of the Sanhedrin. And here we have a scribe, right? probably a member of the Sanhedrin, he approaches Jesus in verse 28. He sees that this debate, these confrontations have been going on in the temple between Jesus and the religious leaders, and he went in on it. And so you notice the question that he asked Jesus there, which commandment is the most important of all? Now scribes, understand a little bit of the question here that he's asking, scribes were biblical scholars. They were trained experts in the interpretation of Scripture. In particular, they were experts in the interpretation of the law, okay, the Old Testament law. And according to their count, in the Old Testament law, there were 613 commandments. Okay, 
So they're talking about the first five books of the Bible, specifically Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They counted 613 commandments, and they broke those up into 365 prohibitions. You can't do these things. And 248 positive commands. You were commanded to do these things. However, in this breakdown, there was debate among the scribes over which commandments were to be considered heavy. That's the word they would use. That is, which ones are most important. And which ones were considered to be light. Those that were of less importance. So those that were heavy were more important. And if you violated them, there would be more serious consequences. Those that were light were of less importance. And if you violated them, there would be less severe consequences. Well, this scribe here wants Jesus to weigh in on the debate. So we ask him, which commandment is the most important of all? In other words, of all the commandments, which one is the most heavy? Which one is the most important and essential? Well, we'll spend our, the rest of our time this morning looking at Jesus' answer. And we're going to consider Jesus' answer in two parts, okay? So the first part is love is the essence of the law. Love is the essence of the law. And we're going to consider that. And then the second part we're going to consider is love and the kingdom of God. Love and the kingdom of God. So let's, let's consider the first part of Jesus' answer. Love is the essence of the law. Look there in the text again. I want to read a few verses here for us again. Verse 28 to 31. And one of the scribes came up and heard him disputing, uh, and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so in Jesus' answer, he gets right at the heart, right at the essence of the Old Testament law. And you notice in doing this, he begins by citing what was known as the Shema. We read it this morning. Gary read it for us in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, the reason why this commandment was called the Shema is because Shema in Hebrew is the word for hear. And so that verse actually begins with the words in Hebrew, Shema Israel. So that is, hear, O Israel. Okay, so that's how the commandment begins. And so it was referred to as the Shema. One commentator has said that, quote, the Shema was by far the most familiar most quoted and most copied scripture passage in Judaism, end of quote. In fact, Jews at that time, devout Jews, would have cited the Shema twice a day, once in the morning and once in the evening. And so Jesus begins by citing the Shema. But then he adds to the instruction of the Shema a second commandment, and you see it there in the text, and that is that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he makes the statement in verse 31, there is no commandment greater than these. So in these two commandments, Jesus says, is revealed the essence, the heart of the law. All the, if you want to, if you want to go with the scribes count, all the 613 commandments of the Old Testament law can be summarized in these, contained in these two commandments. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. 
and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now on this point of the essence of the law, Jesus gets the essence of the law. I want us to see there's six implications of this, okay? And we're going to get each one of these pretty quickly. The first implication is that love for God must be undivided. Love for God must be undivided. So you notice as Jesus gives this answer and as he refers to the Shema, this speaks to the God's oneness and the essence, the, the oneness of his essence and being. So, notice here, in Jesus giving this answer, Jesus is answering consistent with Old Testament scriptures. And in so doing, he is denying what is known as polytheism, the teaching that there are many gods, and rather he is affirming God's revelation of himself in the Old Testament scriptures, that there is only one true and living God. In fact, it's important to note that in Deuteronomy 6, where the Shema is recorded, it is followed by a denouncement of idolatry, that is the worship of idols. So in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, we read, It is the Lord your God you shall fear, Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. And it is worth noting that in a culture and in a society in which we live that says that, well, there may be many different gods. And if there are many different gods, all the different gods are essentially just one god. They're all just essentially the same thing. It's worth noting that Jesus did not teach that. Jesus did not affirm that. Jesus was not a polytheist. He wasn't open to polytheism. Jesus was a monotheist. He believed and affirmed that there was one God, the God of the Bible. And here's the practical application as well. If there is only one God, then He and He alone is worthy of our undivided love and devotion. There must not be any other lovers in our hearts, no other rivals competing for His affection. Do you see the logic? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God. You shall love Him. John Calvin, the Christian theologian, described the human heart as, quote, an idol factory. Which is a chilling description of our hearts, isn't it? Our hearts are constantly and perpetually constructing other idols or other gods to which we give our love and our devotion. And it doesn't have to be a wooden image, right? Or some metal image that we create, but it is things, it is desires, passions which we give our hearts to rather than to God supremely, whether it's our demand to be in control or our lust for wealth or our unhealthy obsession with entertainment, and we can mention a thousand others, right? Here's the thing, and get this, we, and this is the dilemma, this is the problem, we love what we know to be evil. We love what we know to be evil, but that's only the half of it. And often we love what we know to be good, which is not wrong, we should love what is good. But we love what we know to be good more than we love God. And so we love what is evil, 
And we love what we know to be good more than we love God. Both are idols. Both are rivals to our love for God. But the one true and living God says there will be no rivals. That our love for Him must be undivided. The second implication is that love for God must be total. Love for God must be total. Now, this is made clear by the fourfold use of the word whole or all in our text, depending on the translation you're reading. The ESV in verse 30 reads, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. So, in other words, love for God must be comprehensive. It must include our emotions. It must include our spirits, our intellects, our wills. And if you think of each of those divisions, it must include all of each one. Love for God must, in fact, consume us. It must be the motivation behind all that we think or do, or say, or feel. Every love that we experience in this life should flow from that primary love. Do you get that? Every love. Love for your spouse, love for your children. Any love that you have in this life should flow from that primary supreme love and serve that primary and supreme love for God. So listen. Understand, that means that our great failure before God and our great sin is not that that we've broken this commandment or that commandment, like you lay out all 613, right? Well, we messed up on that one and we messed up on that one. That's not our great sin against God. Our great sin against God is that we have not loved Him every moment of every day with all-consuming, passionate love. That's our sin against God. Every moment of every day with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength. That is our sin against God. And listen, this is not a commandment that is intended to be burdensome. Okay? This is the fulfillment of this commandment in our lives is heaven. It is true joy. If this commandment were ever fulfilled in your life when every thought and every emotion and every act of your will flowed from an uninterrupted and perpetual spring of love for God, you would know true joy and satisfaction. And so when God commands this totality of love, He is not doing so just because He is undeniably worthy of it, but He is also doing it because He has our absolute good in mind. He is doing it for our joy. In calling for our love, our unreserved love, He is in fact loving us. The second implication, love for God must be total. Third implication, love for God must be greater than love for man. Notice there's a clear distinction here that Jesus makes between these two commandments. In verse 29, Jesus says, The most important is here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God. And then in verse 31, Jesus says, The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So there's a clear priority, right? He ranks them. The most important, love God. The second is love your neighbor. But Jesus also makes this distinction in another way in our text. 
between these two commandments. So in verse 29, Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, with all your strength. But then verse 31, he says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So there is a difference in measure or degree or portion in which we are to love God and to love man. Let me explain. On the one hand, we are to love man, we are to love others, consistent with the love that we have for ourselves. This means we are not to think too little of them, nor are we to think too much of them. But we are to love them consistent with their inherent worth and value before God. And we are to love them consistent with their identity as a creature rather than creator, right? So there are parameters, there are boundaries around which we are to love others. But when it comes to love for God, you can never love Him too much, can you? With all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Love for God can never be excessive. We are to love Him with all that we are. And in the Bible, Jesus are very clear about this, that love for God must exceed even the love that we have for our most cherished relationships in this life. And so this leads Jesus to make the shocking statement in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Love for God must be greater than love for man. The fourth implication Love for God necessitates love for man. So now we're transitioning from the first commandment to the second. Love for God necessitates love for man. So whereas love for God should take priority over our love for man, it is also true that love for God and love for man cannot be separated. The two are necessarily related to one another. And one, in fact, we can go as far to say, and the scriptures do, that one cannot profess to love God and not love his fellow man. So, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 21, the Apostle John says, And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, this has a lot of practical applications as well. So if you are a Christian, understand that reading your Bible by yourself or spending time in prayer by yourself are all good things, but they cannot be separated from or divorced from loving those that God has placed in your lives and particularly loving other brothers and sisters in Christ. Loving the church. You cannot say that you love God and be indifferent to the poor and to the orphan and to the hurting and to the lost. You cannot say that you love God and not love His church, not love His people, the body of Christ. You know, this afternoon we're going to have a, another Berean Basics here at the church. If we meet for about three hours and we talk about 
who we are as a church. It gives people an opportunity to learn about who we are. And it's the first step in membership of becoming a member here at the church. We offer this class about once every month or two. And, uh, and we do that. Why? Because here at Berea, we stress, we encourage people to be committed to church membership. And the reason is because it is so obvious from Scripture that for a Christian to love God, that love should be expressed. One of the ways that love should be expressed is by a love for His church. And, and not just a love for the church in general, right? Like, I love Christians generally, like, that live around the world. But I love a particular group of Christians, a body of Christians, a local body of Christians that's made up of real people who sin and do things I don't like and have bad habits that grate on me, right? you got to put flesh on it. So love for God necessitates love for others. Fifth implication is love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus states that very clearly here, here in the text. And what Jesus is saying here, notice this in this statement, that Jesus is saying that love for our neighbor should be evaluated in light of the love that we have for ourselves. So within each of us, there is a God-given drive towards, this is just one example of this, how we would measure it in light of love for ourselves. There's a God-given drive towards self-preservation. And an innate desire to act in our own best interest. So, what do you do when you're hungry? You feed yourself. What do you do when you're thirsty? You get something to drink. What do you do when you're sick? You go and you get help. You go to a doctor. You take medicine. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's not selfishness. In fact, that's a God-given natural desire towards self-preservation. James in another book in the New Testament, speaks of a brother or sister who is poor or needy. So another Christian who is poor and needy. And instead of one attending to their needs and helping them, they say, it's kind of like, I'll pray for you, right? They say, go in peace, be warmed and filled. But they have no intention of helping, right? They have no intention of following up. It's just kind of a throwaway phrase. Okay, sorry to hear that. Hope you do better. James says, what good is that? When you're hungry or thirsty or needy, do you simply comfort yourself with pleasantries? Or do you take action? In the same way, we should take action when we see brothers and sisters who are hurting or who are in need. Now let me say that each situation, a particular situation, there may be a different response. And different situations call for different responses. So one example is, I was coming out of uh, a place yesterday where I got my hair cut, and a guy walks up to me, and he asks, uh, he says that he and his, wa- his uh, mom are stranded here in Augusta, and they need to get back to Atlanta, and they need some money. They've only been able to collect about 6 to $8, but they need to get some gas in their car so they can drive back to Atlanta. And I said, okay, well, I understand. Well, where's your car? He said, oh, it's right over there. We're in a parking lot, so it's just right, right in the same parking lot. And I said, okay, well, there's a gas station right there. It was like literally 100 yards from us. Uh, We can drive over there, and I'll put gas in your car. He said, well, uh, uh, actually, um, I think my mom's trying to work something out, so I'll just have to wait for her. And I said, well, okay, I hope you you find the money. Obviously, he didn't want gas for his car, right? So, So in a situation like that, love responds by not giving him money that is going to result in him using it 
to do something to hurt himself or farther harm himself. Each situation requires different responses, but each response should be motivated by love, right? What is in the best interest of our neighbor? We can get more practical with this as well in terms of just not thinking about generally people kind of out there that are in need, but even in terms of our most intimate relationships, this is exceedingly practical. You know, for those of us who are married, we have a tendency to spend a lot of time thinking about, man, if my spouse would just do this, I would feel so loved, right? If she, if she or he would do this or love me in this way, then I would so appreciate that and feel so loved. But really, the scripture is what has called us to turn that around, right? And to think about what is it that my spouse might want me to do for them or what ways I could serve them so that they would feel loved and appreciated and cared for. Better yet, we could ask them, right? What one thing could I do to be a better husband or a better wife that you might feel more served and loved and cared for. I'm not the strongest at that, and I'm thankful my wife is very kind not to be saying amen right now. <laughs> Number six, sixth implication is love for God and neighbor are marks of saving faith. Love for God and neighbor are marks of saving faith. So the marks of a Christian, um, if we think about, and when I mean marks, I mean, what are those things that you can look to and, and therefore discern, okay, that person truly knows Christ, is trusting Christ, following Christ. They've been forgiven by God. They've been changed by His grace. And the scriptures say clearly that it is these two things that Jesus refers to here as the two greatest commandments. It is love. It is love for God. It is love for others. So in 1 John chapter 4, we read, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. To be born of God in 1 John is to be a Christian. Okay? Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so if we were to sum up in one word, what is the mark of true saving faith? It would be love. This is the evidence that God has changed us and written his law upon our hearts. This is the mark of a true Christian love for God and love for neighbor. Alright, those six implications were all under point one, the essence of the law, okay? So, point two now. Love and the kingdom of God. Love and the kingdom of God. Look there in chapter 12, verses 32 to 34 for the second part of Jesus' answer here. And the scribe said to him, so Jesus has responded with the Shema, you shall love God, and then also... Um, you shall love your neighbors yourself. The scribe says to him, this is his response, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbors oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. 
And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now, one of the things I think that's really striking here is it described, and, and this is in contrast to the other confrontations that Jesus is having with the religious leaders in Mark chapter 11 and 12. The scribe agrees with Jesus, right? Jesus tells him what the most important commandments are. The scribe doesn't argue with him. The scribe doesn't get mad and try to plot to kill him, which most of the other religious leaders do. He agrees with Jesus. But then Jesus responds by saying, and, and we have to ask the question, why would Jesus respond this way? Jesus responds by saying, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Why, if he agrees with him, why would Jesus not say, blessed are you, you are a child of the kingdom of God? He responds by saying, you are not far from the kingdom of God. I think there's a couple of reasons why Jesus responds that way. Uh, one is that given the context here, we might expect the scribe to respond by Jesus. Now, think about where he is. The scribe is in the temple. This is the time of Passover, which is one of the most significant religious festivals that the Jews observe according to the Old Testament scriptures. And you could imagine in that context that the scribe would insist that the observance of the sacrifices and observance of Old Testament rituals and law were the most important elements of the law, right? But instead he doesn't. He agrees with Jesus' words. The man rightly recognizes that love for God is of greater significance than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And he rightly recognizes that those sacrifices and performing those um, even regarding uh, observing religious festivals are only significant in the sense that they flow out of a heart of love for God. Otherwise they are meaningless. And so I believe that Jesus, in making this statement to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God, in part, he is affirming him. Because this man is rightly recognizing the essence of true religion. And my friends, it is so important for us to understand, as this scribe understands here, that the law is not finally about outward observance of rules and regulations, but God's commandments are finally and ultimately about the heart. If we were to love God with all that we were, and we were to love our neighbors ourselves, there would be no law, right? There would be no need for the law. The essence of the law and all true biblical religion and faith addresses the heart of man. What do we love? What do we treasure? What are we devoted to? What are our affections for? And this man got it. The law was not, or I could say it this way, the law was more than just external commands, rituals, and sacrifices. The law was intended to address the very core of who we are and what we love. And so Jesus, in his statement, there is promise when he says you are not far from the kingdom of God. But there is also, there is also a warning. Because we all know that to be close, and to be near, and even to be not far, is very different than being in the kingdom of God. Listen, you, you might be here this morning, and like this man, 
you get what the most important commandments are. Okay, like you get it. I mean, you're seeing this, and and, and this guy responding, and Jesus responding to him, and just even in your in yourself, there's kind of a resounding yes, yes, this is right. This is right. This is true religion to love God with all that we are, to love our neighbors, ourselves, and perhaps even you've seen religious people. Maybe there's even Christians in your life, and you see kind of their hypocrisy, and it drives you crazy. Maybe they're really scrupulous about keeping all the little rules, but they're harsh, and they're cold, and you can spot it, and you see it. But listen, my friends, there's, there's a warning here. If you get that, even like this guy does here, but it only makes you more confident in your own self-righteousness. Rather than to despair of your own moral, moral failures and the ways that you don't love God and you don't love your neighbor as yourself, if it doesn't do that to you, then you've missed the point. You've totally missed the point. See, there's a danger here in responding by saying, well, you know, 613 commandments, that's a lot of commandments. I mean, I don't think there's any way I could do that. But now we've got it boiled down to two, right? Love God. Love people? I'd probably handle that. If that's your response, then you've missed the point. Let me give you an example I think that illustrates this well. John Wesley was born in uh, 1703. When he was a student at Oxford University, he joined a group on campus known as the Holy Club. And they were fully devoted to pursuing holiness before God. It was a religious group. And so, although Wesley was not converted at the time, he committed an hour each day to private prayer and devotion. Uh, he earnestly studied the New Testament in the Greek, so he studied his Greek New Testament. He took communion every week. These were commitments that he made to himself. He fasted twice a week, and he ministered regularly to the orphans, to the sick, and to the poor. Now, given his spiritual commitment and devotion, he was confident that he was a true Christian. In 1735, when he was 32 years old, he became a missionary to the American Indians, actually here in the state of Georgia. So he came from England, from Oxford. He came to uh, the state of Georgia here and ministered to the American Indians. And it was a miserable experience for him. Uh, there was constant conflict. Uh, Wesley almost lost his life. He almost died. And when he returned to England, he wrote... Quote, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? Wesley was beginning to be brought to the end of himself and to see the inadequacy of all his own self-righteousness. Then on May 24, 1738, so Wesley is 35 years old. This is three years after he came to Georgia to be a missionary to the American Indians, he opened his Bible and he read this verse, Mark chapter 12, verse 34, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And it struck him. Wesley recorded in his journal the events of that evening after he had read that verse. He writes, quote, in the evening I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. So there was a public reading of Martin Luther, who was a Christian theologian from church history, 
who had written a commentary on the book of Romans. And he came to that public reading, and they were reading the introduction, the opening. This is a very significant document in the history of the church, so that's why they were doing this. And they were reading this, this introduction to the book of Romans, and Wesley writes, about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warm. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. End of quote. It was in that moment that Wesley forsook hope in his own ability to fulfill the law and to make himself right before God by doing religious duties and committing himself to religious observances. He trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. He was wondrously converted. He became a Christian, and England was turned upside down. You know, there are many parallels between the scribe here in Mark chapter 12 and Wesley. If you think about it, both of them were clergymen. They were in the ministry. Both of them were highly educated. Both of them were zealous for the law. Both of them were lost. And both of them heard the words, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You see, the scribe got the most important commandment, but he did not understand the most important thing. And what's the most important thing? Well, really, it's the whole point of the Gospel of Mark, isn't it? It was standing, he was standing right there before him. Who is Jesus and what did he come to do? I mean, think about the context in which they're having this discussion. Jesus has been making his way to Jerusalem. He's in the temple and in days he will be going to the cross to offer himself as a sacrifice for the redemption of his people. The most important thing is to know Jesus and to trust in his redemptive work. You see, my friends, understand this as we wrap up. The gospel, this is what we see in this account. The gospel is for good people. I mean really good people that are committed to family values and keep all the rules and have good jobs and pay their bills. The gospel is for people who've never been arrested and never physically hurt anybody else. The gospel is for people who give to charities. The gospel is for people who, if there was a car accident or there was some tragedy like the Boston, uh, the bombing at the Boston Marathon just a few weeks ago, they would run to help other people at their own peril. The gospel is for people who, humanly speaking, are good people. Because even good people fall tragically short of fulfilling what God has rightly called us to do. And that is to love Him with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength. And to love our neighbor as ourselves. For that, we need a Redeemer. And we need a Savior. Let me say it one other way as we close. Your love won't get you into the kingdom, but His will. 
John said in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation of the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And here's the thing, if you trust His love and not your own, He will save you. And He will change you. And my friends, you will find that you will be able to love God and you will be able to love others by His grace in ways that you have never imagined before. Trust Him. Let His love save you and let it change you. And then love Him and others with the grace that He provides. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we have considered your word, and now do the work that only you can do. Lord, you know where each one of us are, and we pray that you would take this word and apply it to our hearts, that we would not just be struck by how fascinating your word is, and it is, or even how... Um, shocking Jesus is, and he is. But Lord, I pray that the word that we have heard would take root in our hearts and that we would be changed. Thank you for Jesus who came to show us true love and to save us because we could not save ourselves. And we pray that by that love, by trusting in his love and his love alone for our salvation, we would truly be empowered to love you and others for your glory. And it's through Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.